This podcast is produced by BoulderCast Weather. We're a local team of meteorologists that provide weather analysis and prediction, as well as cutting-edge forecast services and graphics specific to Colorado's front range. Find more on our website, bouldercast.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at BoulderCast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are reflective of the hosts only and do not represent the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the National Weather Service, L3 Harris Geospatial Solutions, or the United States Air Force. BoulderCast, a bolder take on weather. Welcome to the Bouldercast Podcast, episode 29. We have with us Andy, Ben, and welcome back, Matt Steiner. Yay, welcome back, Matt. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. You haven't been here since episode 25? I don't know. How many years ago was that? It was about four years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Times have changed. Yeah. Everyone's doing their own thing now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, back then I thought I still thought I was getting a PhD. <laughs> what year is that? Twenty fifteen? No, twenty sixteen. Yeah, I already gave up my PhD dream by that point. You were still going strong though. I was still going strong, and then it all came crumbling down. But I still got a master's, so we're good. <laughs> yep, that's something we have in common, and not in common with Andy. That's right. <laughs> you can still accomplish the, the goal, so that's good enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Not having a PhD, I think everything turned out okay for me and Matt. So. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Quite successful. And it's pretty crazy how our paths have kind of uh, diverged in, you know, in various directions. It's, it's really cool to see that. Not just, you know, amongst us, but also in in the field. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, we all have uh, backgrounds in meteorology and weather degrees and advanced degrees in weather, but we all ended up in totally different fields to some degree. Yeah, anything from research to operations to software development, it's all over the map. Those weather degrees, they really train you for a lot of stuff. You know, there's so much computer programming and forecasting. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can do when you get out of college or grad school in our case. All that Fortran we learn, right? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. Somebody, one of our uh, readers asked about, like, how they could get into programming when they don't have a degree in meteorology or anything like that. You know, I was just like, Wow. You know, I started first learning C++ in undergrad and then Fortran in undergrad. Then I taught myself MATLAB in undergrad. Uh, and then once we got to grad school at CU, we all had to use IDL and MCL. So by the time I graduated, I already knew at least five languages. Wow. That's pretty cool. But, I mean, it's pretty easy to pick up languages once you know other languages, I would say. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Same, same as you. I, I learned C++ in undergrad, and then I got to see you, and, you know, just like everyone else, we all had to learn IDL. It's, <laughs> it's just, just the way it is. 
ask questions. <laughs> and then I, and then I learned R and MATLAB, and uh, now now I want to learn Python. And I, I've actually been exposed to some Python because of some uh, some coding that some meteorologists have done at in the Air Force. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a thing of beauty to be able to know all these different languages and know what they're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't see myself ever using Fortran again, <laughs> unless it was for like a supercomputer or some type of model or something. Like Andy, you have to use Fortran, right, for GFS or something? Yeah, like the the core of the GFS, I think, runs on Fortran, like the actual computing part. Um, it's a nightmare. Like, That'll never get upgraded. <laughs> but like uh, HWERF, uh, that that hurricane resolution, high resolution model, uh, uses Python as the driver, like to drive the drive the model. But then the actual model itself is still Fortran, because it's I guess apparently Fortran is super fast uh, language that can do a lot of computing relatively quickly. I guess that's yeah. the one, one advantage it has. Yeah, that those really bare bones languages are really fast, like Fortran and C, and even C plus plus. Sometimes that's the benefit of using those low level languages. Yeah, but Python, like, yeah, Python is kind of like the popular language nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it has a wide range of things it can do. Yeah, you can you can Google search, you know, practically anything you want to do. Like I remember. I was trying to find a library for for my my weather station and I just Google searched, you know, something like Python weather station, blah blah blah. And the next thing you know, I found this code that was dedicated to a weather station. And I thought, man, I could probably just take this and apply it to mine. Nice. And did it work? Uh, we're we're gonna see pretty soon. Okay. <laughs> you haven't set it up fully yet. Not yet. I am on my way to getting there. I have I have a TDY coming up that's in in house where I have to do some advanced weather management work, and then once I get done with that, that's gonna be my next project. Okay. Yeah, setting up those weather stations can be a bit of a nebulous task. Albeit rewarding, I'm sure. Yeah, once you get it going. Yeah, I set up the BoulderCast weather station sensor, and it it hooks up to this little netbook where we're running Cumulus, which is a weather interface software. Kind of a just a GUI where you can see everything. Um. But yeah, it's just a nightmare to get everything configured. So hopefully you can figure it out. Well, that's where I remember whenever I was um, working for Skywatch at CU for a summer, we mm-hmm. we ended up having to calibrate the weather station there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a pain. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I can imagine it. You know, former all the students that set up Skywatch have now moved on, and I think uh, Scott, the guy in charge of Skywatch, is going is trying to upgrade 
to some degree to make it more uh, interactive and modernize it. Oh, that's good. But he sometimes he asks me for help doing certain things. He knows you're the IDL king. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they do have a IDL running at least some of it. I know they use Python for some of it, but it's a lot. They have a lot of instrumentation and a nice archiving system set up. Has he asked you to diagnose all that old code that uh, yeah. that he has just sitting there without any comments? <laughs> <laughs> you know about that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, a little I, bit. <laughs> I, I remember you mentioning there's just this nightmare code base with no comments written in IDL. I can't remember the name of the scientist, but I just remember the code and thinking, oh my goodness, I have to <laughs> decipher all this. It's got no code formatting, no indents. I, think. I not only have to decipher it, I then have to make it better, and I have to provide my own comments, which I wanted to do line for line, because I wanted to remind myself what each line meant. So whenever oh. I left it off... the. Pre- the previous day, I'd come back to it and go, oh, yeah, that's where I left off. Yeah, I think I know who that is. Uh, I think he was in my advisor's group. Um, yeah, we won't name drop him. But I won't <laughs> but... name drop him, yeah. <laughs> Whoever it was, he's not a good coder. <laughs> or he was a good coder and just yeah, or too good. comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, do we want to get started? Uh, we'll we'll bring we'll wrap around back to what Matt's been up to for the last four years at the very end of the podcast. So stick around if you want to hear about that. It's gonna be good. Yeah, it's gonna be great. So, what do we have for this episode, Andy? So we have a current weather discussion, part of which we'll talk about the aftermath of our first hurricane that made landfall this year. Isaias, and we'll talk about how, they, how, how you actually pronounce it. Noah just updated their uh, prediction for the number of named storms in the Atlantic for this year, because it's already been quite uh, active already. Then we have a uh, severe weather that Ben will talk about that occurred in Denver um, this week, and also the monsoon, which still appears to be suppressed. And then our lightning round with Matt talking about his Air Force. Uh, experience and uh, that particular route of his career. Sounds like a great episode. We hope so. We hope so. Okay. Well, to kick it off, we can talk about the big hurricane. It was so, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty as to how to actually pronounce this <laughs> first hurricane. Uh, once we got to the letter I, you know, people at and the forecast office I work for, um, they were like, do you know how to pronounce this word? And so I I had to learn it as well. So um, so which was more complicated, actually pronouncing the hurricane or forecasting it? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, probably probably uh, pronouncing it because I think overall, I think the Hurricane Center and uh, our office did a really good job. We were consistent uh, mm-hmm. on its actual path for like three or four days before it made landfall. So I think probably the pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I honestly, I didn't hear anybody say that name 
anywhere. <laughs> I don't watch much media or anything. Most of the stuff I see is just text uh, more than anything. So I didn't hear anybody say that name. So I didn't know it was actually the Latin American pronunciation as opposed to like the English one. Yeah, so it's it's spelled uh, I-S-A-I-A-S. And I think I, I think originally some of us thought it was Isaiah or Isaias, um, but it's actually pronounced Isaias, uh, which, as Ben said, is the Spanish Latin derivative of the Hebrew name Isaiah, um, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, which I do know that name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's how you pronounce it. Um, there's probably been some mispronunciations before it. Uh, leading up to its uh, eventual landfall, I'm sure, throughout the media, stuff like that. So, yeah, it made landfall late late in the evening on August 3rd into the morning on August 4th, um, kind of in far southeastern North Carolina along the coast there. Um, Was it south of Wilmington or north? I want to say it was a little bit to the southwest of Wilmington. Okay. Uh, but, you know, pretty close to there. At least what we were Just... able to see with the radar and mm-hmm. the actual... Because, like, it didn't... On satellite, you know, you couldn't really see an eye because there mm-hmm. was... Um, it's not very... De- it wasn't very detectable. But in radar, you could see it quite clearly. Mm-hmm. So we, we were looking at this thing and... Uh, I think originally the uh, GFS uh, was showing a more uh, faster progression of the storm uh, before it was, as, as it was getting closer to Florida. Um, the European model, which is tends to be one of the more accurate models, um, was showing a more slower uh, speed once it made landfall. I think at one point the GFS was showing it to be up in Virginia by, by uh, that Tuesday evening. You know, this was like five days out. Um, Mm. And the European was like maybe in South Carolina still. So there were some differences there. And, but I guess apparently the GFS potentially verified on the speed because it it ended up plowing through North Carolina, like in the overnight hours, Monday night into Tuesday morning. Because by the time I left my shift, Tuesday at 5 a.m., it was, it was already past, uh, the Raleigh area. Um, well, you so. got all the action. <laughs> so what were the impacts in the Raleigh area? So primarily in central North Carolina, which is uh, kind of like where Raleigh is, was primarily um, some isolated uh, wind damage with some trees down um, and primarily heavy rainfall. So we were on like the northwestern side of the, of the eye, our eye wall. So we had like three to five inches of rain um, as the hurricane made landfall east of Eos. Uh, uh, you know, in far southeast North Carolina, there were some tornado reports. Uh, I think 29 in total that are kind of the preliminary estimate from North Carolina into Virginia and parts of Maryland, I believe. Um, but we were, we some, sort of lucked out there, like the counties to our south and east were more most susceptible to that northeast quadrant of the hurricane, which is where you tend to get most of the tornado reports. 
and the I storm believe, surge. Oh, in the storm surge, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of tornadoes? According to SBC, Storm Prediction Center, they have 29 total, which includes all of the states. Okay. But, yeah, I wasn't on, like, radar duties that night. It was other forecasters, but they were seeing, you know, quite uh, identifiable tornado signatures on radar as it was kind of moving inland. Um, but as they, as those particular storm cells got closer to our kind of county area, they ended up, those cells like dissipated, um, luckily for us. But we did have a tornado watch that was out to our eastern counties until 5 a.m. on the uh, 4th. So it was, it was close. Uh, I think if it would have taken a different track and if it was stronger when it made landfall, that could have been a different story. But there's, yeah. I think, several power outages throughout the Northeast um, that went up into New York as well. So um, it brought a lot of rain up to the Northeast as well. Um, yeah, I think I was watching the news this morning and they, I think they were saying that New Jer- for portions of New Jersey, this storm was actually worse than Sandy was. And, well, you know, I, I thought, well, wow, that's that's saying a lot because Sandy did did quite a bit, to, if I remember correctly, northern New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. So apparently Isaias, you know, had an impact. Wow. <clears throat> I didn't hear that. So that, that, is, that is interesting. Impressive, too. We also yes. had some... I was just going to say, I had some co-workers in Virginia that were complaining about the storm and the one guy's internet's been out since whenever the storm came until today I think it was fixed at the end of the day so even like way up in Virginia there was pretty good impacts I think he had uh, some storm damage as well some trees in his yard or something or other okay but yeah it was a big storm. It moved really fast, though. It sure was did. Gone. It was gone before, you know, a day or so out of the whole United States. Yeah, I got back from work that morning and, you know, went to bed. <laughs> and then uh, I woke up at, like, early afternoon or something like that. And who would have thought, like, I woke up, I looked at the satellite, and it was already up in New York. I'm like, wow, that's fast. <laughs> so... We also had some greenways, uh, which are like these bike bike trails in Raleigh that, that, that were flooded. We had to issue some flash flood warnings because of the cells that were, they were producing pretty efficient rainfall rates. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was interacting with the upper level jet that was kind of connected with the trough uh, that was eventually tracking, helping to push it northeast and accelerate it too, so... What is a precipitable water value inside of a hurricane? That is a good question. It's got to be like three inches, right? Or like at least two, two and a half. Yeah, at least over two. <laughs> it's like a amount of moisture that you could never get in Colorado. <laughs> well, yeah, if you, if you think about it, what, the temperature at the surface is typically in the 70s when the storm mm-hmm. makes landfall. And if you're, if you're fully, 
if you're fully moist throughout the column, which I would presume in a hurricane you are. Yeah, to the top maybe, of the atmosphere. Yeah, then yeah, I would I would think at least two, if not higher. Yeah, I wonder what that is. That's a good thing to look up. Well, there's a maximum, right? Like the you'd have to follow the moist adiabat from seventy degrees. Or whatever it is. I guess it would depend on the surface temperature. Yeah, exactly. How because moist that... the entire column could be. <laughs> mm-hmm. I bet it could be in the 80s. Probably not, though. If it's raining, I don't know, maybe upper 70s? It's hard to say. Yeah, that's possible. It takes so much heat out of the water. It might just be the same temperature as the water. You could probably look up a sounding from, like, a drop sound. From like an aircraft that like got dropped into the into the maybe the eye wall or something like that. Yeah. But I can't think of it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, that's <just> curious. <laughs> Anything else about Isa Is? Uh not much else. I mean there are obviously a lot of power outages and we had some flickering lights at my place, but it never really did go out, thankfully, in my area. But I Is did that your... <laughs> Was that your first tropical storm or hurricane experience? I would say so. Uh, we had something that went up the Gulf, I think. I don't know what year that was. That was 2006. Mm-hmm. That went through Missouri. Uh, I can't remember if that was Ike or another one. Maybe Steiner knows. I'm not sure. It uh, sounds like it. It sounds like it's... I think Actually, I think Ike may have been 2007, if I'm not mistaken. I guess 2008. Just looked it up. Oh, it was 2008? <laughs> oh, there you go. I through Missouri, though. That was probably that one. Yeah, that one had some, some gusts to it. I think it might have still been had some tropical characteristics when it moved through St. Louis. So I guess yeah, I could say... it looks say like it, it was a weak tropical storm. It was such a powerful storm when it made landfall. It was yeah. moving pretty quick, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, so but, Andy, um, the typically whenever... These storms make landfall. Uh, to, to my understanding, they'll they'll shut down the power just just as a precaution to pretty much everywhere, just to make sure that um, you know not, nothing flickers. And then if they deem it safe, then they'll they'll turn the power back on. But uh, yeah, like so Katrina situation, you mean like if you're gonna be like right before the eye wall hits? Oh well, in Katrina, they. They did it well before the eye wall. I mean, they for, for Katrina, okay. they pro- they probably did it the moment they started experiencing tropical for- storm force winds. Huh. I guess I never thought about that. It's a good yeah. idea, though. I mean, I, I mean, obviously every hurricane's different. Um, when Ivan hit, we lost power at my house down in Spanish Fort, Alabama. I I'd say around. 8 p.m. and mm-hmm. the eye the eye didn't hit until about six to seven hours later at about two to three p.m. and the eye went straight over my house and then <laughs> and then the the other half um, of the hurricane we didn't see the power go back at all at all and I don't think we didn't I don't think we got power back for another 24 hours beyond that so but of course Ivan had a lot of damage too as did Katrina. So every hurricane's different. Yeah, that's true. 
So my guess is Andy, um, the the extent of the damage wasn't too terrible. So since uh, since your power outage wasn't significant at all, they decided to to go ahead and you know deem it safe to turn it back on. I see. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know neither. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I've been in hurricanes where we didn't have power for days. I've been in hurricanes where uh, we lost power for a little while and we got it back pretty quickly. Yeah, you would know, that's for sure. Yeah, we got a resident yeah. Alabamian on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'm a resident Arizonian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's an upgrade or a downgrade, but it's something. <laughs> well, let's just say it's let's just say it's hot every day. We're about to set a record. <laughs> we we are about to set a record for the most number of 110 degree days in a year here in Phoenix. Oh man! Oof. Already but, in early August. Yep, and that uh, that kind of goes together well with uh, one of our upcoming topics, La Nina. Ooh. Ooh. I don't envy that, that's for sure. <laughs> but I'm sure you don't like the upper 70s dew points either. So, Pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dry, heat, dry heat versus a wet heat. <laughs> Just think about that. What if you had 110 degrees with a 78 dew point? <laughs> Ouch. Oh man. <laughs> Is that I don't know if that's really physically possible. But. Yeah, I don't know. I mean def- <laughs> definitely in the Middle Eastern United countries. States. Yeah. I, I think the Middle we, Eastern countries by the like different freshwater seas can get temperatures and dew points like that. Yeah, I was about to say, I I bet you there's some there's some airmen from the Air Force that might be able to give us some stories about some of their hot weather experiences. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's all I had for Isaias. Um, sounds good. Unless you guys have anything else to, to share. I think we're good to go. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Hearing crickets, we go on. <laughs> Great. So I guess we're recording this podcast on... August 6th, which is the same day when NOAA actually updated their Atlantic hurricane season outlook, which is interesting. So they're now saying an 85% chance that this year will be above normal, which I guess is no surprise because we've already seen nine storms already, and it's not even the peak part of the season yet. Mm-hmm. They're, forecasting. they're just playing the numbers game. <laughs> so they're predicting up to 25 named storms. Basically 19 to 25 named storms. Would which... that get into the Greek letters? Yeah, we're completing the alphabet here. <laughs> 20, they don't use all the alphabet letters, do they? They don't. They skip some, no, so... they, stop, they stop at uh, W. Oh, they do? Yep, I don't well, they think don't they go a, to X. They don't have a Q, do they? <laughs> That's true. So there's how many letters is there, Andy? 
uh, goes to W, which is Wilfred. And yeah, there's already, no Q. Yeah, no Q. So we've had Arthur, Bertha, mm-hmm. Cristobal, Dolly, Edward, Faye, Gonzalo, Hannah, and Isaias. So far. All right, so I'm going back to the 2005 hurricane season, and yes, everything you guys have said is correct. All the letters through P, and then they skip Q. Don't know why they skip Q, but they do. (laughs) And then they get to W, and then they go straight into the Greek alphabet. I guess they also skip. I guess they also skip U. Oh, yeah, they skip you. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. Good call. So Y, Z, U, and Q are skipped. So there's only 22 letters. And and X. Oh, and X. 21 letters. (laughs) So 21 letters plus four Greek letters. Maybe this year, according to Noah. Was it 2005 or 06 when we went to the Greek letters? It was 2005, and that year we went into Zeta. So we had Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta. (laughs) I remember the last one actually spilled over into 2006, because it was in January. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think it started started like around Christmas and then dissipated like after New Year's. It's like the craziest, latest hurricane ever. It. It developed on December 30th and dissipated on January 6th. It took a path. Let's see. It's like in the middle of the Atlantic, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. It was was to the east-northeast of Puerto Rico and the Lesser Antilles. Man, 2005, crazy year. Yeah, that was was a quite, quite an active season. Did 2005 have Wilma, or was that a different year? Uh, they did have Wilma. Oh, man. They had everything. Katrina, <laughs> Wilma, Zeta. Rita, I think, too, right? Rita? Did have Rita. Man, what a year. Yeah. That, <laughs> was, never... that was something else. Um, let's see. Some of the other hurricanes that year. There was, there was another hurricane that actually made landfall and my hometown that year and i'm trying to look it up oh yeah hurricane dennis it actually did some pretty significant damage to to i i think navarre beach florida but the eye but the but the eye was pretty small and the 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 wind field of that hurricane was nowhere near as impressive as some of the other ones that we have already mentioned Mm -hmm. yeah dennis is probably the most forgotten major hurricane that year yeah 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 it had peak winds of 150 miles per hour wow yeah that'll do it (laughs) impressive wow so yeah of those 19 to 25 named storms there's they're predicting 7 to 11 of those will be hurricanes and then 3 to 6 of those hurricanes will be major that's a lot of major hurricanes. Yeah. And I guess there's several factors that they cite as the reason behind their uh, updated forecast. One is is uh, kind of what 
Matt already alluded to is the possibility of La Nina developing in the months ahead. So I guess leading up to the summer, I think as Ben pointed out in his one of his posts earlier, there's like cooler than average sea surface temperatures over the equatorial eastern Pacific. Um, so if that develops into a La Nina, that could weaken the wind shear over the Atlantic and further aid in storms to develop. Yeah, I think that also uh, weakens any any potential for a subtropical jet stream to exist, which which basically makes any sort of potential for wind shear non-existent. Mm, okay. Which is which is which is why the Atlantic doesn't see any wind shear during those during La Niña's, at least typically. Wouldn't it be the same in the Pacific though? Well, with limited limited equatorial convection, so that would cut down on the subtropical jet stream from the Hadley sail being weaker. I don't know though, but I mean they also have to worry about the colder waters. So yeah, so that's probably counteracting that. Probably like both. The colder water makes it worse, but the jet stream, the lack of upper level winds makes it better. Right. So the question is, which one which one is stronger than the other? Which one is a stronger trigger or lack thereof? Yeah, I know during La Nina's the Pacific Seas usually sees less hurricanes, less tropical activity. Exactly. Kind of counterintuitive to the Atlantic. But, me- the seas- but meanwhile the uh the Western Pacific, usually their um, water temperatures get pretty extreme on the on the warm side, mm-hmm. which which tip, which I would presume means they get an increase in tropical activity. But I'm not sure about that. I don't know what the statistics say there. Yeah, I don't know either. Good quick, yeah, good point. I'm not sure. Well, so it looks like we had two hurricanes so far this year in the Atlantic. Uh, just before the North Carolina one, we had Hurricane Hannah, which is the one that came into South Texas and then took a turn straight into Mexico and died oh, yeah. in the mountains. Yeah, that's right. And yet again, I don't think Arizona saw a hint of that moisture. I know. Mm. Yeah, we were hopeful Darn. that moisture would kind of go more north and west. But it really just pushed straight into the core of Mexico and really never even recirculated back north into the Arizona, New Mexico or anything. It's kind of unfortunate. So I have a oh, interesting question. So so if we have obviously more than 21 named storms, they go from the Greek alphabet for the new, new letters, but uh, new names, I guess. So did they actually reuse the same Greek letters would they retire a greek letter if it was like <laughs> if it got like category five or something like that that is a great question Ooh. i imagine they would they should i guess they're just hoping that never happens <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a backup plan to that one andy <laughs> i think you've yeah. just broken the system <laughs> i gotta start like subbing in i don't know <laughs> like Spanish numbers or something. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> I've, I've always said that they just need to 
you know, do a complete overhaul of how they name storms and just hold an auction for naming storms and just, you know, have, you know, have the highest bidder, you know, yeah. name the storm whatever they want it to be named and call it good for each and every single storm. And so <laughs> you'd have, so the way it would work is, and I've, I put some thought into this and I should patent it because no one else has ever thought of this at least not to my knowledge, is they sh you have storm number one for, you know, X hurricane season. And, you know, you have your bidders come up and bid for that storm, whatever it is, and the highest bidder gets to name it whatever they want. They can even name it after themselves. And then storm number two, storm number three, so on and so forth. Obviously, you'd probably want to do a little bit of research on, you know, what, what uh what storm you want to bid high for de depending on what the climatic patterns are and everything but in the end the and it, you know and this is where it gets good all the proceeds to the auctions would go to naturally hurricane relief funds i like it <laughs> why not why don't we do that why not well you should uh you should uh, suggest it. I am shocked I haven't patented this idea yet. I, mean, I am shocked. Are the bidders going to be like people or yeah. corporations yep. like Hurricane Disney or something? <laughs> Would that be good advertising? <laughs> it might be. I don't know. That's beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I, I presented it in front of a, a classroom full of uh, CU undergrads, and they seem to like it. <laughs> they were on board? <laughs> I think they were on board. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a celebrity, if they wanted to, you know, bid a million dollars on naming a storm after themselves, <laughs> by, all, by all means. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. I mean, it's kind of like a good press, bad press type thing in terms of your name being attached to the storm, especially if it's a damaging one. But <laughs> at the same time, I mean, the, the funds are going towards hurricane relief, which ultimately becomes a good thing. So, I mean, in, in the end, my that thought is, a, it, you know, it had good intentions. Hur hurricane LeBron is making landfall in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> not what you want to see probably don't expect him to be bidding on it <laughs> <laughs> never know that's all i was going to say there except that they're also citing warmer than average sea surface temperatures um low vertical wind shear which that's tied to probably the developing la nina and uh weaker uh tropical Atlantic trade winds um, and enhanced West African monsoon, which, which I guess the African monsoon kind of helps bring in those uh, tropical waves from Africa into the Eastern Atlantic. And then eventually those can develop into hurricanes. Sounds like it's going to be a pretty rough year for the Atlantic. Yeah. Good luck with those forecasts, Andy. <laughs> I, I didn't really know it at the time before I came out here, but when I started looking into the the climate of the region, I think we we get a glancing blow or impacts from 
hurricane or hurricane remnants like at least once every two years mm. so or once every other year so it's pretty frequent so we've already mm -hmm. had one so will we have two that's the question or three <laughs> this could be a year <laughs> that's good exposure for the passionate meteorologist true that yeah well <laughs> one other thing i'll add about la nina it may or may not be contributing to what arizona in my neck of the woods at least is currently not getting which is rain but uh we've been extremely hot this past july we saw the hottest average temperature ever recorded in the month of july so yeah really? it's needless to say it's been hot um we haven't i think for the entire month which monsoon season in theory is supposed to start on june 15th we didn't receive any rain here until i would say late july and we only received like there was one there was one day where we got a trace of rain and then the, there was another day where we had a storm develop over over my house and surprise and and that's really it i mean we've we've been bone dry here meanwhile the monsoon storms have been hitting uh down in southern arizona places like tucson and huachuca so some parts of the state have been getting it but the extent of the monsoon hasn't been stretching as far north as it usually does yeah i've been looking at the uh just the precipitable water maps forecast pretty much regularly and yeah those that deep monsoon moisture really never leaves the very southern part of arizona mostly it's in mexico but if it does come north it doesn't really come too far in certainly not the phoenix no, never. And Tucson is actually having one of their driest monsoon seasons as well. Yeah, they at are. Least, at least officially at their air, at their uh, climate site. In fact, they had a on the on the tallest mountain in the city, Mount Lemon. They had oh, a yeah. they had a huge wildfire that was affecting the mountain and several mountain communities and. And uh, nearby, and the nearby state park there, which is Catalina. So, and it did a pretty decent amount of damage to the forests up up in that up in the mountains. So, um, after I'd say almost a month, they were finally able to one hundred percent contain it. But it took a lot to put it out because there was a period there where Tucson hadn't received any sort of rainfall for I'd say three weeks almost maybe more mm -hmm. so wow. pretty pretty unfortunate sequence of events to have transpired during that time and it and it was indeed triggered by a lightning strike yep it's another downside of the monsoon <laughs> without a doubt especially uh, at the beginning of the monsoon when everything's still pretty parched mm -hmm. those initial lightning strikes can start a lot of fires yeah, exactly, because you have a lot, you, you can get these isolated thunderstorms to develop, but they don't have a ton of moisture with them, they're, they, they're pretty high-based early on, and so all it takes is one lightning strike, and sure enough, I remember this one cell was moving over my house in Tucson at the time, and I, I'd say about 30 minutes later, uh, 
well, no, probably longer than that, actually. I'd say a few hours after that, we were getting news footage that a fire had started to go wild up in the mountain there, I guess. So at that point, we knew it was going to get pretty bad. And you could see smoke coming from it every single day. We had we had really bad haze conditions, really poor air quality. If I wanted to work out at night, which I could have because I was on the mid-shift at the time, I couldn't because there was just too much smoke. So it's just a bad time. Wow. Well, and for the for the listeners that don't really know, Mount Lemon is sort of like the Pikes Peak of Arizona, from what I gather. It sits at about nine thousand feet above sea level, if I'm not mistaken. There, there are mountain peaks in the state mm-hmm. that get as high as twelve thousand feet, but I think they're in the northern part of the state, if I'm not mistaken. But Arizona has quite a lot of mountains, so yeah. Yeah, I remember Mount Lemon has like a road that goes to the top of it, kind of like Pikes Peak. It does, it does. Like a, and they and a hotel maybe up there or something. They have, they actually have a ski mountain up there. Okay. It's yeah. it's not it's not very big. It has one chair, but it's it's pretty cool <laughs> that you can ski that far south. Mm, definitely. Nice, impressive. Yeah, so we just put out a post on Boulder's July, and Boulder had the fifth driest July in the last 130 years and it was warm but it wasn't one of the warmest years so yeah the monsoon's just been very disappointing overall how did uh how did denver rank was it also like in top five um i'm not sure but i imagine because they had a little bit less precept than boulder i believe but i know denver's actually was keeping pace for the number of 90 degree days not like matt's 110 degrees but then <laughs> <laughs> Denver was keeping pace with 2012, which, as you know, and most of our listeners will know that 2012 was pretty much the hottest, one of the hottest summers we've ever had in Front Range. That was the year with all the wildfires um, around Boulder. That was the one in Colorado Springs, Waldo Canyon. So, yeah, Denver's had somewhere around 40, 90 degree days. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Maybe 42 and the record is about 48, so at least through the end of August, I mean. Or sorry, end of July. So it's been hot and dry pretty much everywhere. Just the monsoon really never got going. I don't know. I've been checking the forecast a lot to see if there's going to be any type of revival for the monsoon. It just doesn't look like it. It's actually pretty much looks dead to me. It looks like there's no way it can possibly come back. Well, the ridge has just been sitting on top of the western United States, particularly my state, which, yep. you know, I'd like to say it's probably because I live here and no other reason. <laughs> but but nevertheless, uh, you know, typically when we see ridges like this, that's that's an inviting sign for the monsoon. But I, I suppose it's just the orientation of the ridge just hasn't allowed for that moisture to advect up like it usually does. Yeah, I mean, typically we want to see that ridge more to the east, uh, over more like Texas, maybe eastern New Mexico. That way we can get the good counterclockwise flow straight in Arizona. Yeah, when we just haven't or seen clockwise it. flow, yeah, into Arizona. But yeah, like you said, the ridge has just been kind of, it's been kind of flat as well, which hasn't helped anything 
too much either. Just been sitting over Arizona, New Mexico, and even Southern California. Yeah. And looks like that's going to continue for another week or more, another couple of weeks. And then, you know, we get too much further here. It's going to be pretty much the end of the monsoon season anyways. Have to hope for a uh, a good winter, I guess. Yeah, I was checking the Tucson dew points just to see what they're looking like. And today is actually, uh, we're, we're recording this on August 6th, but today is the lowest dew points in Tucson since early July. We actually just had a trough, a very weak trough move through um, uh, just yesterday, and it actually brought us some pretty decent gusts into Western Phoenix, where the Air Force Base is located. Uh say like upper 20s in, in knots and okay. uh, on, on the back end of that trough last night our low temperature was about six degrees cooler than the previous days and our and our lows have been in the 80s consistently oh, for, man. for a while now so it was I mean I'm, I'm never up that early to experience you know the the minimum temperatures but I'm sure it was nice to feel that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we, you guys had that trough kind of move in and then dissipate and kind of get retaken over by the ridge. Pretty much. <laughs> already. So, I mean, you don't expect troughs to really do much in the summer anyways. No, but when they come, they're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we haven't had a good trough really in, I don't know, a long time here. Yeah. When I moved out here to North Carolina, there was like early June. I think it was the first or second week after I settled mm-hmm. in. We had uh, some chilly like rainfall when I was when I was off or whatever. Um, and I think it was like temperatures were in the seventies when it was raining, so it was like a chilly, you know, chilly trough. I guess you mm-hmm. could call it. <laughs> and then behind it, we had like dew points in the I think upper fifties or something. So it was like perfect. Um, but then like as the weeks progressed into July, the fronts just kept, they would just like, like they would hit a brick wall and they're like, oh, I can't go any further. I can't go any further. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, Oh, it's the, that time of year when they just get stuck in the, in the Midwest and then don't, don't get southward. So it's been that kind of year. Well, the... Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to see if you wanted to talk about the severe weather in Denver. Yeah, I didn't want to get run a little bit long, but I just briefly comment that, you know, with the monsoon suppressed, we've had uh, that will tend to open the door a little bit so we can get some more uh, stronger northwest flow uh, along the uh, northern tier of the ridge. So. We've actually had a lot of severe weather for the last week, which is a little bit atypical um, for this time of year. So I think there was about six straight days where we were in a marginal risk or higher starting last week. And it was pretty much the same thing every day. There would just be some thunderstorms developing over the mountains. Uh, They would get that long, skinny, sheared out look on radar. And then there'd be a couple warnings for hail. But I don't think it was overly damaging from anywhere in the denver metro area i did see some interesting 
pictures on Twitter near Greeley where they had just as far as you could see in, into the distant farmlands. It was just white because there was so much hail. I know Matt likes accumulating hail. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so that was one of the days. That was a pretty cool. Yeah. Otherwise, not too much happened. I don't know how much rain border got out of it. It rained pretty good uh, one of the days this week. But otherwise, it was pretty isolated. And there were a couple tornadoes down by the Pinery, which is where Shannon's family lives, right? Uh, they used to live there. They oh, have since moved. Okay. Well, they got away from the tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, yeah, it was just some landspout tornadoes, which are pretty common in Colorado and don't cause much damage. So it was an active week. That was pretty. That was the main story for this week. Uh, this week's weather in the Denver Boulder area. Otherwise, yep, getting back to being hot again, as you know too well, Matt. Yeah, your heat's coming our way. We got Southwest flow. The smoke started to fill back in. Are you guys have a lot of smoke down there? Looks uh, like you should. So a few days ago, our our temperatures actually dropped last Sunday. I think. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact high temperature was, but we had we had some pretty hazy conditions throughout the day, and I think it was due to a, a wildfire in Southern California. Okay, that was that was uh, that was being pushed out into our neck of the woods. So, um, so for that for that particular day, yeah, it was it was pretty evident, and then. Into the next day, I could still see it a little bit, but since then, I think it's cleared out, and it it looks pretty nice. It's pretty clear out here. Not not many clouds. Obviously, with that trough pushing through, um, moisture has been on the decrease, so that's yeah. that's allowed our our dew points to drop and also our low temperature. Oh yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So yeah, I mean. I don't, I don't really know what to expect moving forward, but um, it'll it'll be interesting to see if uh, if we have another major warm up before we start to see things slowly cool down as we move into September and October. But I've been told that things things are going to stay pretty hot for longer than I want it to. <laughs> yeah, I'm already tired of the heat. And it's just 95 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in the 80s for the last week or so, and it's been nice to have no air conditioning, be able to sit outside comfortably. Yeah. See, I can anything. I can I can stomach that because at least in the mornings you're you're waking up to some you know decently cool temperatures, but. And that's and and those are temperatures that you can still kind of get a morning jog in, or you could mm -hmm. get a morning bike ride in before it heats up, man. But out here, it's already so hot by the time you wake up that it's it's just not even worth going outside to to run <laughs> or bike or do whatever. Yeah. So we've so uh, we we have some indoor exercise stuff that that we like to use. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have to, I guess. Yeah, it's the only way. <laughs> and and couple that with 
obviously the pandemic that we've had and that makes it increasingly more difficult to to work out at uh you know like a fitness center since i think the fitness centers are still closed here i'll have to double check that yeah i never i never know if those are open or not it seems like they're open here but i can't say for sure well just a just looking at the uh, climate prediction center forecast for the next six to 10 days, eight to 14 days, one month and three months. It's all pretty much hot and dry in the desert Southwest and then wet in Andy's neck of the woods. <laughs> what are the normal predictions for North Carolina? That's I wonder if that's from yeah. the hurricane though. And what about for Boulder? Um, Boulder's sort of in the same grouping as the rest of the Southwest, hot and dry. Nice. Yeah, seventy percent chance of warmer than normal. Days six through ten, eight to fourteen. That takes us all the way to the August twentieth. Seventy percent chance of being hotter than normal. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see anything changing in the near term. I think the rest of this month's gonna be pretty brutally hot and dry. Yikes! In Colorado, I don't know. It's one of those years you just can't get the monsoon moisture up here. So we're going to be pretty dry until we start getting the storm track returning in September. That's hard to believe that you're about eh, maybe a little over a month away until you could potentially see the first snowflakes. Yep, September 14th, I think, is Boulder's first snow on record, which only happened a couple years ago. 2014, I think. So that's about five weeks. Yeah, I can't believe it could be snowed in five weeks. (laughs) I pray it happens. That's why Colorado weather is the best. <laughs> Absolutely. It wipes the floor with Arizona. <laughs> hey, hey, easy. <laughs> it's it's close to North Carolina, but I think it's better. We got more snow. We we average five to six inches of snow a year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Border That's... at 152 last year. <laughs> <laughs> All time high. <laughs> it's it's less than uh, St. Louis. I think St. Louis averages 12 to 18 inches a year. Yeah, so that's where Andy's from, his well, hometown. Not that there's 400 years of 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 climate data to look at, but if we were to look at 400 years of climate data in Phoenix, I doubt we'd even total 152 inches of snow. (laughs) (laughs) You might be surprised. You'd have to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that in March, it was either February or March of 2019, Tucson received a snowstorm that dumped i think an inch or two of snow and then they actually had a snow event right around new year's as well wow of 2019 so and i think and i think that same year and those same storms i think uh scottsdale greater phoenix area uh most of those areas received anywhere between like an inch or two yep i remember this storm you're talking about so you know not out of the realm of possibility yeah you need like a really deep cut off low some crazy southern tracks trough right to get snow down there oh yeah yeah but, but the, it can but, happen yeah it can happen but and the mountains are kind of like all over the place here 
and you don't have like a, a huge mountain range and and the setup that Colorado has with like the Palmer Divide and and the Rockies being kind of oriented north and south with the with the sharp upsloping from east to west. So it it kind of I would say it kind of complicates the the weather patterns here in Arizona since the mountains are just all over the place. That's how I feel trying to forecast in like central Colorado when you know you got mountains everywhere that you don't know. You have to be very mindful of the wind directions and elevation and different terrain effects. Well, in that sense, Boulder's a little bit easier, I would say. <laughs> There's only mountains one way. <laughs> well, we've said this before, we'll say this again. Western CONUS meteorology. It's the biggest <laughs> forecast challenge in the United States. Yeah, that's true. East Coast, that's easy. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. It's a big, it's a big field. <laughs> we get we get some mountain meteorology here. I mean, it's very very uh, minor compared to out there. But when I so I came here and they have the Appalachians to the to the west, obviously. But there is sort of like a little trough that develops if you get the westerly flow. It's not as pronounced as the okay. lead, lead, really? as the trough in the front range of Colorado, but they call it the Piedmont trough because that's like we're in sort of like the Piedmont plateau. Um, so it is, it, you do kind of see it in the pressure pattern. Uh, it's interesting. So it's been kind of cool to observe. <laughs> I only know the Piedmont region from growing up watching the Weather Channel. They'd always talk about the Piedmont. The Piedmont. I remember that too. I, I like never. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say Piedmont outside of the Weather Channel describing weather in North Carolina, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the other Carolina or South Carolina. <laughs> what is the Piedmont? Is it only in North Carolina? I have no idea. I know it's in North Carolina, but it, it probably extends to other states. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's some geological reference. Well, I, that's all I had for current weather, from okay. hurricanes to severe weather to heat waves and monsoons. I think we got it all covered. <laughs> I guess that leaves one more round, the lightning round, where, Matt, if you want to talk about your uh, Air Force experience and things that go along with that. Absolutely. Um, so, obviously, I got I to gotta be careful what I talk about, because a lot... A lot of uh, what's in the Air Force is classified, so I'll, I'll just keep this short, and I will keep it brief. But um, I, I will, I do want to just talk about the mainly the differences between forecasting weather in the Air Force compared to forecasting weather, you know, pretty much in, in the civilian world, and. I'll, I'll start off with the similarities first. Um, I mean, we're all, we're all operational meteorologists here. We, the, the main goal is to, is to protect our resources. It's to protect our people. It's, it's, um, we, we, we use our skill set to basically provide as much lead time as possible before danger is coming. So though, so those factors are similar on both sides. The, the other thing that's really similar is 
you know, how we come up with our forecasts. I mean, they're, you know, naturally we're, we're going to use the, the forecast funneling technique, so to speak. I'm not sure if I first learned that in the, you know, outside the Air Force or in the Air Force, but basically the, the forecast funneling technique basically um, is, a, is an expression for like, you know, focusing on the large scale features first, you know, where's, where's your ridge, where's your trough, Look at, looking at all, looking at all the different levels of the atmosphere and turn and on the synoptic scale and maybe even the hemispheric scale and then and then breaking it down a little bit further looking at at some of your smaller scale features for what whatever area you're concerned about and coming up with your forecast after that and so in the civilian world and particularly, I'll go ahead and just say the National Weather Service, they're particularly concerned for with um, their, each office is particularly concerned with their uh, warning areas. And Andy, Ben, as you both know, and Andy now, especially since you're working in Raleigh, um, you know that you're you have an area of responsibility where you have to issue warnings for various counties. And those counties are in portions of North Carolina, but they could extend beyond the state lines. I don't know if they do in your case, but um, so that's that's kind of how the the, war, the warning system works for for the civilian world, you you issue warnings for counties. You you uh, provide a hatched region to to represent where the warned area is located. Same thing for watches, except on a much larger scale for like a severe thunderstorm watch, tornado watch, what have you. Meanwhile, on the on the Air Force weather side of things, are when we itch, issue watches and warnings, we are issuing for particular locations that would be kind of like counties except we're we're going to be mainly worried about um air force base airfields and also the surrounding areas so we our our main um, mission is to provide resource protection for all of our manning and all of our aircraft and 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 the and the the structures on on the Air Force Base. So typically, what the what we're concerned about warning for are um, are the airfield and anything that is within five nautical miles of the airfield. And so, if you if you were to look at some of the place files that we have installed into GR Level Two and GR Level Three. Uh, you'll notice that we have a lot of circles on on our maps that essentially represent um, areas that we are going to warn for, and so all those all those watches and warnings we are issuing for those particular areas and really nowhere else. So, and I'll I'll, I'll just leave it at that. We have. We have uh, 
we have expectations in terms of the desired lead time that we want depending on the weather phenomenon. So for a for say for example for a tornado warning or a severe thunderstorm warning, for a tornado warning you have probably on the order of like 10 to 20 minutes desired lead time for a severe thunderstorm warning, you could have anywhere from 30 minutes to even 120 minutes desired lead time depending on the location. So the expectations do vary depending on where you're issuing a warning for, but obviously the mission, regardless of whether it's the civilian world or the military world, is going to be pretty similar. So that, that was the main thing I kind of wanted to touch on. Yeah, that's interesting. I just remember Matt in the past asking me for very specific forecasts thoughts about buckley air force base you remember that matt oh yeah for sure yeah, I, I think you're asking like is buckley air force base do you think buckley air force base is gonna have so and so mile per hour winds or how much snow are they gonna get yeah and that's so, because we have thresholds for winds yep <laughs> well i think it was like 30 some knots or something you're interested in yeah yeah something like that so yeah, you just you just care about Buckley and then five miles circle around or ten Basically. miles circle around all that. Yeah, and it, it'll depend on the location. I mean, every 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 base's criteria it, for the watches, warnings, and advisories are going to be different depending on you know what they have. So, are you issuing something like a se- severe thunderstorm warning whenever there's? An existing severe thunderstorm warning from the National Weather Service if it's going to go near your airfields? And sometimes sooner than that. So you're looking, so you're doing it before them? Yes, because um, we're not necessarily issuing warnings based on the, mm. the existing storm. We're also issuing warnings based on, let's say, Say for example, if we if we think a Virga bomb is going to come off the mountains and hit the Air Force Academy, or if uh, if an outflow boundary is moving from north to south uh, on the south side of the Palmer Divide and it's going to bring fifty knot winds into into Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. So those are just two examples. I see. Wow. How many airports or air bases do you have to monitor at once? Uh, so, so it is divided. The, the ops floor is divided into um, sections for, for, the, for, the, for my first assignment. Uh, we had three zones and we divided it into a north, central, and south zone. And the central zone consisted of Central California, Nevada, and Colorado. So um, obviously the majority of weather for that zone, which was the zone I worked, was Colorado, naturally. Mm-hmm. So so um, yeah, that that was always a handful to, to have to look over on any given day. Yeah, it would be, yeah, that'd be tough because uh... Our office, we do these TAF forecasts, which are the terminal aviation forecasts for five airports, I believe, in our area. 
So it's hard to keep track of all that, but I'm sort of learning about it. I'm not doing it right now, but you get, you kind of get into like everything, like with Matt said, like the outflow boundaries, the wind, you look at fog, you look at icing, um, pretty much you name it. Any, anything that you could think of, you have to alert the, uh, the airport and the pilots and the, the people in the, I guess the tower in advance. As Correct. Best. Yeah. And there, and whenever you issue a TAF, at least on the Air Force side, um, the TAF the TAF goes out, um, and yeah, you're inc- you're including turbulence, you're including icing. Sometimes there are even things in the remarks section which you may also want to include. Um, but but what makes it even more challenging is that if you're TAF goes what they call out of category. So say, for example, um, one Air Force base wants to know when the ceilings go between go from between zero and 1,000 feet to 1,000 feet to 2,000 feet. You have to amend your TAF to reflect that new uh, cloud that new cloud ceiling criteria and that and you only have a certain amount of time to officially amend that TAF before it's before uh, you've uh, missed your deadline. Or yeah, yeah, that's that's tough. Right. So yeah, TAF writing is kind of an art. Um, certainly, I've seen I've seen TAFs that are extremely long. I've seen TAFs that are extreme that are probably too short. Um, <laughs> It's you when when you're writing when you're writing a TAF, you want to make sure that for every line of your TAF that it reflects what the what the weather is going to be like for you know that many hours that you have it going effective for. Yeah, and taking into account the particular airport's uh, you know runway configuration and. Uh, it's individual thresholds for visual flight rules and things like that. Exactly, and also also considering, um, you know, every every airport, every airfield is going to have different runway headings. So, concerning yourself about that and figuring out if those if the winds are going to provide those runways with a crosswind that can potentially put a stop to um, air traffic for, you know, for, you know, a long period of time or it could be short, but regardless, it's, you know, it's things that, that the, the ATC or the air traffic controllers care a lot about. Yeah. Well, you make forecasting for general weather over the Denver area sound easy. <laughs> <laughs> When you forecast over the same area every shift, you start to recognize things that you otherwise wouldn't, as you both know. Yeah. Yeah. Gets a lot easier. Pattern recognition, I guess, is one of the terms. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Your mental climatology. Yeah. (laughs) So I think the other thing that I I did want to mention before... uh, before I'll, uh, you know, kind of finish things off, 
is uh, the mo- the model of choice for for the Air Force is known as the Gowan model. And don't ask me to to uh, mention what the acr- what the Gowan actually stands for because I don't know. But basically, the Gowan model is is uh, is taken almost directly from the uh, from the UKM model. And uh, is is basically the Air Force's weather prediction model that uh, that we that we basically ingest for the entire world. So it's it's pretty effective. Obviously, just like any other model, it has its has its strengths and it has its weaknesses, and it has its biases. But that's that's the model, that's the the weather prediction model that the Air Force uses. It seems weird. I guess in a way, it kind of maybe simplifies things because eventually, like you said, you'll learn some of the biases and advantages of the model, and maybe you can pick out when it does poorly or or badly. You can kind of maybe see a pattern there and adjust accordingly, sort of like an internal moss, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why though? Why the UK Met model? I have no idea. <laughs> but I mean, it, it does a good job. I mean, I mean, you know, as, as I said before. Well, it's probably better than the Canadian model. <laughs> that would be my guess. I never look at the UK Met though. I don't know. Last year, I believe, I think it was doing pretty good on the hurricane tracks, but I'm not sure how it did at the end of the season. Early on, I thought it was doing a decent job so i'm i'm taking this straight from a website uh let's see actually i'm not finding the information i thought i was gonna find so on 1 october 2015 the new global airland weather exploitation model otherwise known as the gawim based on the united kingdom met offices Unified model was implemented as the Air Force's primary weather model to meet warfighters' global requirements. Hmm, interesting. And so, really, I've I've had the model to look at the entire time. It must be some requ- some way. I don't know some certain parameters that it forecasts or something. Do you guys need? I don't know. Hmm, it's interesting. Yeah, but I'll I'll probably just leave it at that. <laughs> you didn't convince me to switch i'm still sticking with the gfs euro nam occasional canadian even the canadian model ouch only only for snowstorms and only so i can see what not to predict that makes sense it <laughs> makes sense you're like all right looks like three to six check the canadian whoa the canadian says three to six too i'm not forecasting that what models do you mostly use andy uh yeah i definitely rely on the gfs work um i think they use the blend we use a blend so we look at all the models um we look at the high resolution models especially for thunderstorms convection they tend to Mm -hmm. do a better job at least leading up to the event not necessarily several days in advance but you know 24 hours out i do a decent job but yeah as you get beyond like 
three, four days. It's, you know, using ensembles to kind of look at uh, highs and lows and precip chances. Yeah. And large scale features where the troughs and the ridges are going to be. Exactly. Good old ensembles. Okay. Well, that's all I have. You guys have anything else? Not that I know of. I'm good here. Okay. Guess we can wrap up. This will be probably one of our longer podcasts. But it's okay. We had to welcome Matt back and get his update on life in Phoenix. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll just get straight to business next time. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yep. Everybody take care. See you next time.